Last week, uh, before I get into the message I want to talk on, we, I want to finish up this, uh, we've had a four-week series now on God's view of the nations, on God's view on racial, racial reconciliation, what the Bible has to say about it. And the Lord's been doing some very powerful things through this. Through this. Last week in particular, um, the Lord really showed up. I don't know if you were here or not. But God did a, a powerful thing. Um, some, of, some of the powerful things that God did last week happened up here at the altar after our, our service had officially closed. Um, and let me just say a word about that. We've noticed that, and this doesn't surprise us all about this place, but we don't usually start on time, or actually we, you, we usually start on time. You guys aren't here on time. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of times when we end the service, people don't want to end it. They feel like, man, I, I just feel like I want to worship some more and whatever. And a number of people have said that. And it just occurred to us, why do we have to put the Holy Spirit on our schedule where we say at 10, 15, or at, at 12 o'clock, we got to end no matter what God's doing. And so what we've kind of had in mind is the idea that perhaps God wants us to be a place that doesn't go along with the traditional Western way of doing church, but we sort of evolve into services and evolve out of them. I mean, we still want to start on time and encourage people to be here on time, but after the service, to just say, instead of just like ending it, saying, okay, now go home, just to say, we're going to now transition and, and worship the Lord, and if you want to come forward for prayer, we'll have people up here who will pray with you. If you want to come forward and just wait on the Lord and worship the Lord, uh, you can do that. If you need to leave, then feel free to leave, but don't think of it as the official end where you're supposed to leave. You can leave if you want to leave, or you can stay if you want to stay. And the people in the nursery have graciously uh, allowed us to, um, to, to, to they're, they're willing to go on and, and uh, Take care of the kids if you want to come forward and pray here. Um, and uh, we're just going to try this out again today, and then in September maybe do more of this. If you do that and you go, pick, go to pick up your kids, really say thank you to those guys, because while we're in here getting our socks blessed off, sometimes they're in there getting their hair ripped out. So um, make sure you say thanks to that. But anyways, just so you know about that. And God did some great things up here. We just don't want to put a closure to what the Holy Spirit might want to do. Another thing that God did in last week's... Uh, service, if you weren't here, and even if you were here, just remember it, is that we had uh, a white brother, an African-American brother, come up. We talked about racism. We talked about how God's, God's view of the solidarity of people groups, of nations, what we call races, though the Bible doesn't have that concept. We talked about the difference between sin and iniquity, sin being your personal sin, iniquity being the consequences of those sins that are passed on from generation to generation. What we saw last week is that it's a biblical principle that the sins of the fathers are passed on through iniquity to the generation after generation until they are dealt with. And we in this nation and we in the Church of America today, whether we ourselves wrestle with the sin of racism, we suffer under the iniquity of it. And I believe that a great deal of the struggle in the church today with bringing about racial reconciliation, and I know that all of the problems in our society with dealing with racial reconciliation are the reason are the result of the fact that the iniquity of things that have been done, racial sins, violent crimes, injustices, covenant-breaking that has gone on in past centuries has never been dealt with. And until it's dealt with, it continues to wreak havoc. This is why I am not particularly optimistic about our culture's ability to, to solve our racial problems is because we think with such band-aid solutions. We think so individualistically. But the issue is much more broad than that. It's much more holistic than that. But in the church, we know God's perspective on it. He deals with people groups as a whole. There's a unity to people groups as a whole. And so we had a, 
white brother and African-American brother come up here, Jim Winters and Abraham McCarty. And Jim Winters, they, they just wanted to do this, and we were just kind of waiting on the Lord to see if this was the right thing to do, and they decided that it was the right thing to do, so they came forward. And Jim Winters stood in the gap on behalf of white people and asked for forgiveness for crimes that were done to Abraham and the black people in past centuries. And with tears in his eyes, enumerated some of the sins that have caused iniquities to be passed on even to the present time. And then Abraham said, it's covered by the blood. It is washed clean by the blood. And it hit powerfully. Those of you who are here know how powerfully it hit. And the fact that it hit so powerfully is an indication of its rightness. It hit a chord as they were up here asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness. You could feel that you were dealing with a genuine issue. This was just beneath the surface all along. And now we're bringing it out of the closet. And this is something we can do in the church, in the, in the body of Christ, where we're all just sinners saved by the blood, is we can take this iniquity. In the Old Testament, they had to actually execute people to do it, but we have an executed Savior who does it for us. We apply the blood of Jesus Christ. It's washed. So we start with a clean slate here in the body of Christ, but it needs to be addressed. And the fact that it hits so hard and hits so profoundly tells me this. It's a true thing to do. It's happening all over America. It tells me that we're ready for it. It tells me that the church in the Twin Cities is ready for it. And I believe that the church throughout America is ready for it. In fact, as I just said, we're seeing God moving like this in a lot of different ways, actually around the globe, through YWAM and Vineyard Ministries. They're beginning to do what happened here in the service last week. And it's beautiful and it's profound and it's bringing what the Bible calls a healing to the nations, a healing of the nations, a reconciliation, a burying of the iniquity that's been passed on from generation to generation. And I really believe, as we're sitting here to wind up this four-week series, that one piece of God's plan to restore his bride is this whole issue of racial reconciliation, bringing together the nations that was never part of his original design to be separated. God has been restoring his church for some time, preparing her so when the bridegroom comes back, she's ready. He wants her to look a certain way. He wants her to have a certain kind of attitude. He wants her to be constituted in a certain kind of way, and he's now preparing that. One of the main ways he's doing that is by taking things that have been central to the church but marginal to God and making them marginal to the church. And taking things that have been marginal to the church but central to God and making them central to the church. And it's the process by which God is restoring her, his bride's vision. The process by which he's beautifying his bride. Grace has always been central to God, but it's been marginal to the church, but God is now in the process of putting it back in the center. And say, you guys need to know and live by this, that your holiness and your rightness before God is there by grace, not on your own efforts. It's becoming a central thing in the church as we're learning how to walk by grace. The gifts of the Spirit and the whole idea of walking in a supernatural Christianity has always been a marginal thing for Western Christians, but it's been central to God. In truth, there is no Christianity that is not a supernaturally empowered Christianity. And the Lord has been taking that thing that's been on the periphery. Oh, we'll get around to it. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And the Lord's saying, no, no, no. My heart is that this is center. And if it's in my heart, if it's center in my heart, it's got to be central in your heart. So God is restoring the gifts of the Spirit with the, uh, the, the, the charismatic movement and pouring out His gifts upon people and teaching us to walk in his spirit. But he's taking things like sacramental forms and denominational lines and building architecture, things that have always been central to the church, 
But he's been saying, you know what? All that is marginal to me. And he's making it marginal here. If you don't think that's, that's correct, just ask yourself the question, is God moving in one denomination more than another right now? Is God preferring one over another? You look around and God finds wherever there are people who say yes to it, wherever there are pygmies who are willing to break out of traditional Western molds and walk in the Spirit, God's saying, I'll take it, and he's pouring out his Spirit, and he doesn't much care what, what kind of sacramental forms they go by or what denominational lines they, they're, they're, they're colored within. He's moving wherever he wants to move. So he's taking what's central to him and making it central to the church, what's marginal to him and making it marginal to the church. And for so long, this issue has been at the outermost margin of the church, especially the white church. The issue of racial reconciliation. Yeah, that's one of those things, you know, can't wait till heaven until it's all taken care of. But the Lord is saying, no, no, no. And what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks is this. Throughout the Bible, one of the central pieces of the storyline, one of the central pieces of the storyline is God's desire, his heart, his passion to take the nations and to unite them under his blood in the faith of Jesus Christ. And so he says through Jesus Christ, as he becomes a man in Jesus Christ, he says, this is, this is the way that the world is going to know that I'm for real. Here's how the world's going to know that I've been sent by the Father. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. It's by your oneness, it's by your unity when you are one, even as I and the Father are one. Then the world will know that I've been sent by the Father. Then the world will know that I'm true. It's not first and foremost by your intellectual arguments, by your historical evidence, by your ability to out-argue people that the world's going to be convinced. Thank God for that. There's a place for that. But the Lord is saying it's primarily when the world sees that you're made of something different, that you've got a love that they don't have, a unity that, you, you, that they don't have, that the walls that characterize their relationships just don't have a part in your, in your fellowship. That's when they know that I'm true, that I'm for real. They'll see it with their own eyes. And then he says this in verse 22 of John 17. I wanted to preach on this last week, and I just didn't get a chance to. So now is my introduction. I'm preaching on it. John 17, he says this. Verse 22, he says, Father, I have given them the glory which you have given me. Think about that. The church has the same glory as Jesus Christ. What is that glory? He says that they may be one even as we are one. The glory of God, the beauty of the bride as she radiates in the brilliance of a million suns, the glory of the bride as she inherits the nature of her bridegroom, as she inherits his righteousness and his holiness, the glory of the bride, the glory that the world is to see, which will convince them that the Son of God is the real Son of God, is the glory of our oneness, the glory of our unity, the glory of this multifaceted, multi-brilliant, multicolored, and multicultural bride of his that shines with a unity and a glory and a love that resembles the glory of the eternal Godhead. That's when the world sees that it's all for real. You think this is a marginal thing in God's heart? This is a central thing in God's heart. If our unity simply replicates the homogenous unity that the world has, what does that prove to them? It proves that we're just like them. We are trend followers, not trendsetters. The Lord does not want a bunch of people who just mirror the culture. He wants a people who reflects himself. Praise God. Unity of love and differentiation. That's the unity he's striving for his people here. And all God's people said amen. 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 Praise God. This is the heartbeat of God, and he's restoring his bride, and I believe we're going to be seeing it, be praying for it, be working towards it. I need to talk about two objections that are sometimes raised against everything I just said. And as I close out this, this series, I wouldn't be being honest if I didn't deal with these two objections. These are not objections that were said once upon a time. These are contemporary things that people say, that people preach, that people write about. One of them I 
just dealt with last week in the visitor's room. So I want to deal with these. These are two theological objections that believers sometimes hear and use to counter everything I just said. Because everything I just said makes some people feel very uncomfortable for some reason. Two theological objections. The first one is this. I'm just going to be dealing with a couple of passages here. It is sometimes argued that Babel, the Tower of Babel, was done by God. God is the one who came down and scattered the peoples. God is the one who gave them a diversity of tongues and separated them throughout the world. And so it is sometimes argued that if God did it, we shouldn't be trying to reverse it. That God's plan is to have nations separated. God's plan is to have segregation. That it's part of the natural order of things that black people and red people and white people and orange people just don't fellowship together. And that when we try to reverse this, we're actually going against the will of God. And one of the evidences that it's unnatural, the argument goes, is that whenever different races get together, historically, they've always fought. That's not quite true, but it's too true. And so that's used as evidence that God just doesn't want this to happen. In fact, there are some who would actually make a virtue out of this and theologize it into a principle. It's called the homogenous growth principle that I talked about uh, several weeks ago. Well, they'll say this. The church, in particular, should not be trying to buck society and buck the mindset of most people. The church should rather be intentionally homogenous. That if you want your church to grow, you should target one people group, not many, because studies show that white people are more likely to go to a white church than any other kind of church, and black people are more likely to go to a black church than any other kind of church, and Native American and, and Hmong, Hispanic, and so on. So target one people group and don't try to be diversified. And if you are diversified, if there are some people who want to come in, of course you'll let them, but you don't try to be that. And even when that argument isn't explicitly made, there's an assumption about that that people accept. And I believe this is a major obstacle in the thinking of a lot of Christians in going forward with this peace that the Lord wants to restore in his bride. It grieves me, actually. And let me tell you why. If you look at Genesis chapter 11, this is why it's so important to read the Bible carefully. Genesis chapter 11 is where the Tower of Babel occurred. Now look at here. It says there in verse 1 in Genesis chapter 11 that the Lord, that, that the whole world was one. They had one language. But things began to get corrupt. This is several hundred years, maybe several thousand years after the flood. But things already are starting to get corrupted all over again. And the Lord said, or the, the Bible says this. This is what the people at the time were saying in verse 4. Then they said, <clears throat> Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Okay, this is a religious thing. They want to build their way up to heaven. No longer are we going to have to wait for God to come down to us. We want to build our way up to heaven. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Okay? What was going on here was this. The people at the time wanted to be united. But they wanted to be united around something that was profoundly evil. There was a false religion, a false 
religious goal of building a, a huge city that would unite people and a huge tower built to foreign gods. We have other records of this humongous tower that people made. And apparently, and at least some scholars believe it was a tower that was dedicated to, to other gods where ch- child sacrifices would be made. Sacrificing children to gods has been a common thing throughout the history of, of, of human beings and pagan religions. This was a heinous thing. And God saw that it was heinous. And so he says this in verse 6. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Here's what the Lord is seeing here. The Lord knows, and we all know from experience, that there is nothing more powerful in history than people who are in agreement with one another. The unity among people is an unstoppable combination. And that can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. And the Lord is saying this, if, in fact, these people succeed in uniting around this tower, this false religion, this false belief system, if they unite around that, then all true faith will be gone. And there will be no end to stopping them. There'll be no depth that they won't sink to. There'll be no evil that they are not capable of. They will get to be to the point where they were before the flood, down in the depths where the Bible says that everyone thought evil continually. If human beings unite around this false premise, this false religion, this paganism, then the cause of the human race is going to be gone. And it was in response to this heinous sin that was going on. It was as judgment to this that God said, I've got to go down and I've got to break up their unity. I've got to confound their languages. I've got to somehow make it so they can no longer cooperate together and build this tower and unite around this city, this paganism. And so the Lord came down. What we've got to see here is this. This was not part of God's ideal plan. This was not a dream that God had from the foundation of the world. This wasn't part of God's beautiful design. This wasn't something good that was going to happen. God intervened at this point to keep us from annihilating ourselves. He intervened here as a stopgap to try to keep us from bringing more destruction, more sin, than we would have brought had we stayed united. He did it as an act of judgment, but also as an act of grace to keep us from annihilating ourselves. It was not part of God's all-good design. And it was a provisional thing. It was never meant to be permanent. We've got to see this. Which is why in the very next chapter, in the very next chapter, God calls out Abraham. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father, the single father, the figurehead of many nations. Already God is saying, I'm hitting upon a plan to begin to reverse this destructive babble that we've had going on for so long. Already God is thinking of a way that he can pull the nations back together. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 that the Lord told him that he'd be the father of all who believe. Put the two together. What the Lord is saying to Abraham there is this. I'm working towards, I'm striving for it. It's my passion to have a time when the people groups that are separated are going to be reunited, but no longer united under a false religion, but united under a true religion, under a true faith. And so he calls Abraham to be the father of all believe. He calls Abraham to be the father of many nations. And then throughout the Bible, you have this heartbeat of God, and we've looked at it the last couple of weeks, this passion of God. He keeps on saying there's coming a time. There's coming a time when this scattering will be no more, when this babble will be, will be reversed, when I shall be the Lord of all the nations, and all the nations shall be united around me, and the Messiah will come, and his inheritance, Psalms 2 says, his inheritance will be all the nations. Listen to this. I'll give you one more passage here. Zechariah chapter 2. Where's Zechariah? Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah chapter 2. 
<clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for water. Listen to this, you guys. This is just one. This is a representative passage of the kind of heartbeat that God has throughout the Old Testament saying, I want to reverse Babel. That was not my heart. That was not my plan. It was a provisional thing, but I look forward to reversing it. It says here in verse 10, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming. I will live among you. This is Yahweh speaking. I'm going to live among you. Get glad about that. Woo! Many nations, he says in verse 11, many nations will be joined with the Lord, united with the Lord. You might say like a husband and a wife. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Israel, here's why you should be happy, because this is not just about you. This is about all people. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to be with you and all people will be joined. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. An incredible passage here. Notice this. It's so important to read the Bible carefully. The Lord is talking. Yahweh's talking. He says, I'm going to come down and live among you. You're going to be my people. All the nations are going to be my people. And you will know that the Lord has sent me. The Lord says you will know that the Lord has sent me. It's a prefiguration of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And then know, know what he says here. He says, how are we going to know that the Lord has sent him? Because all the people are going to be back together again. This is the proof of the pudding of the gospel, folks. Babel has been reversed. You'll know this because all the nations are going to be my people. Fast forward that to John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying the same prayer. He says, here's how the world's going to know that the Lord has sent the Lord. He is the Lord. How the world's going to know that? Because in the church, there is this, one, this oneness, this unity. Babel has been reversed. That's why on the day of Pentecost, I'll say it one more time, the first thing, the first thing, that happens when the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost is they begin to do what Babel had, had initially done. They begin to reverse it by speaking in other tongues. And everyone who's present there from all these different nations, they're there, to, they're there together on the day of Pentecost. They begin to hear the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God we just saw in John 17 is our oneness. It's our unity. They begin to hear the glory of God being preached in their own language. The walls are coming down. It's the Spirit of God Almighty coming upon the church fulfilling the passion of God announced in Zechariah. What we have got to see here is this. Babel was never part of God's original design. His heart was always to reverse the thing and to bring people together again. And the place, amen, the place where this has got to happen, the place where, where the, the, the reversing of Babel has got to occur is in the church, which is his bride, which is his body. It is us here right now. The Spirit of God comes down and breaks down those walls. In Revelations chapter 7, I'll read it one more time. Praise God. Gives us a picture for what it's going to look like in the end, and it gives us a picture, therefore, of what it's got to start looking like now. When John looks out, he sees, oh, read Revelation 21, where it's, this whole thing is fulfilled, because now the groom comes down, it says in Revelation 21, and he says, I will dwell among them. I will be their light. All the people groups are there. The, the groom comes down. The bride is there in the new Jerusalem. This is heaven talking now. And he looks out and he says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they were crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. And unto the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. 
forever and ever. Amen. That is what the church looks like. This is a central piece of what God's aiming at in history, and it's a central piece of what God is aiming at in the church. And the way the world's going to know that it's all true is by seeing it begin to happen here. Babel was never meant to be permanent. I, I like to say that when people talk as though Babel was part of God's original design, and whenever we reflect attitudes that are, reflect Babel. Well, I know, they shouldn't be married together. That's just not natural. You know, uh, you shouldn't be, my daughter shouldn't be dating that guy. That's just not natural. Or it's just not right that we hang out together like this. Or, I, you know, whatever. They are literally babbling. Say Amen. That's babbling. You're talking as though Babel was still supposed to be around, but it's not. Here's the second thing, a second argument that i got to do quickly here. And this has been one that's been very common, and sadly it's been very hurtful to a lot of people. It's not used so much. I haven't heard this one used recently. I've read it, though. But the attitude that it reflects is still prevalent in the church today, especially in the white church today, and I think in other churches as well. The argument goes like this. Israel was called to be a separate nation. The Bible says, come out from among them and be a separate people. And sometimes that is interpreted along racial lines. That at least, since God didn't want Israelites mingling with other peoples, well then, God doesn't want any peoples mingling with other peoples. Babbling. One verse that's commonly used to this end is found in Ezra chapter 10. Where it says this. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, this he's talking to the Israelites, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. And sometimes it is said that this mandate of Ezra was given to all of us, all God's people. So God doesn't want interracial marriages, and God doesn't want a lot of mixing of, of, of the races. Ezra says, come out from among them. It's the only place in the Bible, there's one other verse that says the same thing, but it's about the same event, where God actually commanded divorce. He hates divorce. But here he commanded a divorce. Because the harm being done by staying married was worse than the harm that is done by divorce. And as I said, this assumption is very frequently not voiced, but is there among people. And there's a suspicious eye glanced. When the Bible gets treated like this, I burn up. That's why I'm sweating so hard. I burn up at it. Listen, let me say three things about this. Number one, if you were going to make an argument that this word from Ezra still applies to us today, the only thing you could say is that it was spoken to the Jews. The Lord's talking to the Jewish people here. It's the only verse in the Bible that talks like this, by the way. But if you're going to make a case that this is supposed to be a permanent thing, then it's only to the Jewish people. The Jewish people aren't supposed to marry foreigners. But the Lord never, not as there, there's not one verse in the Bible where God expresses any opinion about other people's marrying other people. So if it did apply, it applied apply only to the Jews. But a second point is this. If it applied to the Jews, it only applies for a certain period of time because I can show you verses before Ezra and I can show you verses after Ezra where God doesn't really care whether they marry foreign wives or not. In fact, there's a lot said about how to marry foreign wives in the Old Testament. The Lord didn't have a problem with that. 
Paul said that the true Israel is not the Israel in the flesh. Anyways, God wasn't ever concerned about racial purity. If you look at Deuteronomy 21, for example, the Lord gives some, some teaching about how a Jewish male, and it's always to Jewish men because women were never allowed to choose their mate. That was a male thing back in those sexist days. And so it's always talking to men. But it says, if you want to marry a foreigner, there's only one requirement the Lord gives. He says, well, you've got to find her attractive. Okay, if you find her attractive, then there's some of those things she has to do. She's supposed to shave her head and some other things. I don't know why that's there, but the point here is this. The point here is this. The, this teaching is for a particular time in Jewish history. The Jews are right now coming out of Babylon. And this leads to my third point here. What this is all about here, it's a serious thing, but it has nothing to do with race. The Bible doesn't even know anything about race. What it has to do with is theological purity. You see, what happened with Solomon, and happened a number of times when, when people would take on a lot of foreign wives, which is what was going on here, is that they wouldn't convert those wives. So those wives coming out of Babylon, coming out of Canaan with, with their pagan religions, would start to water down, would start to pollute, would, would start to hinder the faith of Israel. And if it was to go on very long, here the children of Israel were coming right out of Babylon. God needs them to be a light to the nations. He wants them to reveal the truth to the nations. But if they're being polluted by accepting all of these pagan practices, this pagan theology, then the light is in danger of being extinguished. And so it's on that basis, for that reason, that the Lord says, you've got to put away these foreign wives. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they're foreigners. It's got a lot to do with the fact that they're pagans. If this verse is to be applied today... It should be applied in this way. It's a good, sound warning to us believers to be concerned with who we marry, not racially, but in terms of their theology. The Lord does say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And if you want to make a case out of this verse, or the Bible's teaching on this, it's that believers should marry other believers, because as some of you know from experience, it gets difficult, it gets hard to walk on fire with the Lord when your spouse isn't a believer. That's where the teaching applies. But nothing... Nothing could be more irrelevant to this verse and to any other verse in the Bible than how people relate racially. The color of a person's skin from a biblical perspective, every verse of the Bible, the color of a person's skin, whether it's someone you're fellowshipping with, whether it's someone you're going to marry, whether it's what kind of church you're going to attend, the color of their skin is about as significant as the color of their hair or the color of their eyes or the size of their calf muscle or the height of their body or the width of their body or any other kind of difference. It just isn't an issue. Amen. It's just not an issue. Nowhere does the Bible put any kind of emphasis on that or see any kind of importance in that at all. People make it an issue. And then they read into the Bible their own presuppositions on it and try to, and this has got to grieve the Lord, try to make God voice their own intentional or unintentional racist lines. The only thing that could ever make a person think that skin color is an issue or any other facial type is an issue is sin. Sin blocks us off from God. We don't get life from God. And if we don't get life from God, then we try to get it by something else, like my color is better than your color, or my ways of doing it are better than your ways of doing it, or my way of singing is better than your way of singing. We try to get life from something petty, like the outer quarter inch of our covering. 
But what it is in truth, from a scriptural perspective, is nothing other than sin. And we've got to call it for what it is. Sin. It ranks right up there with all the other big sins that we sometimes talk about. It ranks up there with adultery. It ranks up there with fornication. It ranks up there with drunkenness. It ranks up there with homosexuality. It ranks up there with stealing. It ranks up there with greed. And the sad point, the sad thing about it all is this. You're much likely, more likely to hear a sermon in most churches, on any of those other sins, or driving too fast, or on playing the lottery, then you are a, a sermon on racism. And that just ought not to be. Because this is a central part of what God's all about. Praise God. As the worship team gets ready to come, I, I want to just end with this question. Okay, okay. Hopefully, in the last four weeks, you've gotten convinced that this is part of God's passion, a central part of God's passion. Now you ask the question, now what? What do you do? What do, you do? How are we supposed to do this? And maybe I'm supposed to come up with a, a seven-step program right here. Well, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to you know, do, 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 do. Here, here's our program that we're going to have to build racial unity. And if God gives you an idea for that, go with it. But I'm saying I don't have a program like that, and I don't think a program would work. Think of this. When I reach down and grab this water and take a swig, hmm, how did I do that? How did I do that? It's profound here. The way I did it is that my head told my body to do it, and my body just did it. I didn't have to come up with a program. I didn't need to have a 17 steps to it. I just did it. Why? Because my body listens to my head. I got control of my body. It's a really convenient thing. We are the body of Christ. Each one of us are members of the body of Christ. We are connected to the head. I'm not the head. Steve's not the head. Dave certainly isn't the head. He's a pimple on the head, but he's not the head. No. The head is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. And what those last four weeks has been about is simply saying, here's what the head has in mind. Here's what the head is about. Listen to the head. He wants this to begin to happen here and other places. You're the body of Christ. You're a minister as much as I am or anybody else. It rests on all of us. And all I would say is this. Listen to the head. He's, he'll tell you how to go about it. He'll move you if you're listening to it. Here on Sunday morning, look around. Where is God leading you to go and talk to somebody maybe you've never talked to before? The Pioneer Press. This is the last point, guys. The Pioneer Press. Last week had an article on racism, and I usually don't like anything the Pioneer Press says, but this was a pretty good one. And they said this, we've tried all these programs, and nothing seems to be helping. In fact, they seem to be hurting. You know what has to happen? People start, got to start hanging out with one another. That's their solution. People, and I, I said, you know what? That's exactly right, and that's what the body of Christ is. God will move us. He is moving us, if we're listening to this, to start hanging out with one another. And I want to leave you with this challenge. Listen to God here on Sunday morning, and in your neighborhood, or whatever, to start crossing over the lines quite intentionally. To start, invite someone to come over to your house, to have a supper together, to go to a movie together, to play pool together, to go jogging together, to have communion at your house together, to whatever. Start hanging out together. That's what the body of Christ is. And if we listen, the Spirit of God is going to be moving us to do just that. And the goal of the whole thing, the goal of the whole thing, and this is what we've got to be striving for, and we'll never give up until it happens. I'll just end with reading this, and then we're going to proclaim it. This is what the church is, what the church shall be. John chapter 7, or Revelation chapter 7. There's, there's to be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That is the glory of God. Amen. The unity of human beings rooted not in our attempt to get to heaven, but rooted in God's attempt to come down to earth. Heaven brought down to earth. Standing before the throne and in front of the, the Lamb. No more babbling. Babel has been reversed. 
They were wearing white robes. We're all was washed in the blood. We're holding palm branches in our hands. The anointing is there. And then we cry out with a loud voice. Salvation, which in, in, in the original Greek means wholeness. Wholeness belongs to our God. Our God. Whites, blacks, Native Americans, Hmong, Vietnamese, Chicano, everyone. Belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 